0: Hello everybody, welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey, I am your host and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Please check out our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and check out our previous and upcoming episodes covering a plethora of topics relevant to business creators just like you. Also subscribe on your favorite subscription network, we're on several of them, and Remember, we are here to help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So one of our themes has to do with profitability. And I think that when we have an entrepreneurial venture, when we create businesses, we need to have a focus on profitability. It's one thing to have a million dollars in revenues, but if you have a million dollars and one cent in expenditures, and you don't have an efficient and profitable business design, really what you're doing is you're paying a penny a year to be in business, is what I like to say. And to help us understand the concept of strategic profitability, we have with us today Michelle Williams. And let me tell you about her. Uh, She is a certified profit-first professional who's helping creative business owners focus on the financial health and profitability of their companies. She believes that each choice determines profitability. is through her consulting agency known as Scarlet Thread Consulting. She helps her clients understand the impact their choices have on the financial success of their business. And today, Michelle is here on the Business Creators Radio Show to share her story and inspire you to help you plan for success with strategic profitability. So, Michelle, come on in. The weather's fine.
1: Hi, Adam. Thanks so much for having me today.
0: All right, so already I can almost hear those keyboards tickling out there, and we've got our listeners. They're leaned in, and they have opened separate browser tabs, and they're binging the Googles to discover more about Michelle Williams and something called Scarlet Thread Consulting. So what we like to do here at Business Creators Radio is take a step back before we dive in and ask our esteemed guest, that being you in this case, a little bit about your journey and what has brought you to where you are today, serving entrepreneurs and business creators in the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. We read off your very impressive bio, but now let's hear the story of Michelle. You know,
1: Adam, I love so much that, that you described it as a journey and that you used that word because you know, we none of us are where we started, or hopefully we're not where we started, right? But we're also, in most cases, not where we're going to end up. And I want to say that at the very beginning because I think that, that is super important. I mean, I've just gotten off a couple of coaching calls today. Um, and, and, you know, doing the hard work to own the financial aspect of our business, it is a lot of, of heavy lifting. I mean, it really can be. And and so I say that because I know that sometimes this is a weighty subject, and some people might think, I want to tune out of that. Like, I don't want to deal with that part. But I'll tell you, once you kind of understand the puzzle pieces for the financial aspects of your business and you can put it together to create the puzzle, right, the the picture on the box that you want, it is so empowering. And so I say that because that is not how I started. And, um, you know, I think some of us are so great at teaching and offering what we now know but what we maybe did not know at the beginning. So I'm going I'm to jump back. Um, for some of your listeners, Their are whole age, 30 years. And I graduated from college with a degree in information systems and administrative management. And I had thought when I first started college that I wanted to go into accounting. And um, when I got into accounting, I made great grades. I understood it. But people were not as um, social as I wanted them to be. (laughs) They kinda had their heads down with their numbers and so I was like, I can't I can't five years do that. I I gotta do something else. But I always had this affinity for the numbers and so I went into the information systems piece. I say that because what's so funny is when I graduated from college, my first job was with Dun and Brad Street software. And I was supporting accounts payable systems and working in their enterprise wide financial software. So we did accounts payable, general ledger, purchasing inventory, receivables, all of that. And so I went from accounting, but then looking at it more from a workflow and a systems perspective, and then ended up being the development manager that built the project accounting software solution over two years. And um, At that point, I left my corporate job and came home to raise my children and started my own company. But what was so interesting was I have, you know, a degree in all of this, worked for 10 years doing and literally building financial software. And I didn't even stop to think about that um, as part of what I would think was my new micro business. I thought about it in the grand scheme of huge business, right, like mainframe business, but not in a very micro business way, not even small business, which is like, what, $5 and under? So long story short, I worked for a couple of years and pretty much paid people for the opportunity to serve them. I loved your one cent. It cost you one cent to be in business. For me, I literally paid people so that I could serve them and create beautiful things for their fourth house while my kids Uh couldn't, you know, get new shoes. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I say it, and I say it that way because it gets our attention. But I would suggest to you that there are still many entrepreneurs. I run into them daily that are still doing the same thing. But we've created this story that it's okay because we're working in our passion or we're serving someone else, but we're not serving our own homes and our own families. And so I had, like, a wake-up call two years into that that was I was sitting at the table doing our taxes, and I realized that what I was really doing was taking the money that my husband was earning putting it into my company as an angel investor so that I could work for free, not be home, not make dinner, not do all the other things that I could have. I could have done all these things and not even had all the stress of a job on top of it. And it, it, I just knew then something's got to shift and change. And so I went through this process, Adam, of really trying to figure out what is the difference between having a hobby and really being in business. Okay, so that was like my first big aha was what is the difference here? Um, as some of my clients have um, so kindly named it, having a jobby. And I was like, I don't want to have a jobby. I want, I want a business. So what does that mean? And what, what are some of the ownership responsibilities of being in business? So I defined those things from like set hours, a defined process, um, a mission statement, a vision statement, values, you know, all those things that we think about and a firm financial plan for success. Because my business started and I never had to go to a bank to get funding, I was never forced to create that really detailed um, business plan, right? Because I was self-funding. And so in, I would say in many ways that was a detriment because I didn't have to sit and work it out. So, when I got to the point that I was like, I'm personally not putting any more money into my own business until I get this thing worked out, it made me sit down and do all that hard work. And that's when I started getting very serious about every dollar in, every dollar out. If it comes in, I'm going to tell it what to do. And so, my journey continued on a little at a time to then I became profitable. And then I paid myself a salary, and then, uh, excuse me, I forgot to pay Uncle Sam everything that he was due for that great salary that I just brought home. So then I had to figure that out. I go a little bit further, and then I'm like, oh, snap, I have not been putting any money into my retirement. I should probably do that. And, you know, I was working as an LLC. And so at that point, there was no payroll. I was the payroll, right? I'm working all of this out as it's flowing straight through my taxes, and so it just, it was like a stepping stone, a piece at a time that's falling in place. And so fast forward, I ended up um, starting to teach other entrepreneurs in my space because they kept going, okay, you've definitely got this worked out, Show sure us what to do. So around 2007, 8, 9, I started teaching the concepts and, um, and then fast forward, I found the book Profit First in 2015 read it and i was like this is extremely similar to what i've been teaching and doing but even with more process and procedure around it and so i picked up the phone and called over to headquarters and i'm like okay we're doing a lot of the same things i think we need to find a way to work together and then they told me that they had profit first certification so i jumped into that and continued to teach um, profit first um, to, to clients around the
0: world yeah you know there's something in that excellent story that uh, you shared with me and one of the themes I noticed is that when you said sometimes we pay our clients for the privilege of getting to serve them uh, pretty mm-hmm. much in words I, I might be off by yeah. one or two and I think I know one of the I think I know one of the issues behind it and since you're here I know this wasn't originally part of our plan necessarily to discuss I know we, uh, there's plenty that you want to download to us as you share with me in the green room? Uh, but I want to bring this up as a little bit of a personal story about me is many years ago I was in a different business and this is the type of business where we would do uh, bespoke projects and we would write out these proposals with step one, step two, step three of everything we were going to do. Sound familiar so far? hmm Uh-huh. Okay. So I got this one client and, uh, you know, lovely enough person. I'm not going to you know put them down as a person, because I think they're great as a human being, And I think that they have a lot of passion for the work that they do and what have you. But I noticed a recurring theme when it came to our relationship. Now, this is way, way back. And uh, when I described the nature of some of the things that were happening, you understand this is something that I've not done for years. Uh, So it's a very Mm -hmm. old story, but relevant to business creators, is um, part of the agreement uh, was that uh, we would, uh, uh, my team would install WordPress for them, um, install and activate their theme, change the theme's colors and logo and such to match the client's brand, and then give the client instructions on how to use WordPress because they were fairly new to WordPress. Fair enough. So somehow the client got it in their mind. That, uh, what we had actually agreed to do was to copyright three long form graphic heavy sales letters. Somehow they interpreted Mm. what the agreement actually said as the other thing. So not only did the agreement not say anything like that because, uh, we would have been talking about adding at least another zero to the estimate if that had been the case, number one. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, uh, number, number two, uh, there was also a bullet point in, the uh, agreement that said all content is provided by and responsibility of clients. So two different ways that what they said was not the case. And then there were other things that would come up where it seemed like they were creatively reinterpreting the agreement and uh, tried to make me believe that there was a lot more in that thing than there really was. And for the dollar amount we were talking about, believe me, I was cognizant of what a great deal they were already getting. I already knew that they were almost stealing this thing because I uh, gave them a sweetheart deal because they were a friend of a good colleague of mine. Uh, another mistake that I think people make. Uh, so, anyway, sure. Anyway, anyway. so you can see there's a mind shift thing that's changed, and I'm just sharing this story a little bit because I think it ties in with what we're doing, and I think that it's going to touch on so many aspects of uh, what we discussed. So, I would keep referring them back to uh, review the agreement and if we needed to go over it again, and if there was some change in the understanding or whatever, then if we need to do any change orders or anything like that, then we could do that. And the person would keep saying, oh, well, I don't have the agreement. Could you send it to me again? Even though they signed it. And dutifully uh, sign it, send it to them again. Then the same conversation will come up. So finally, we get to the point where we say, okay, we've done everything that was on the list plus these other seven things, and I listed them out. And, uh, and, uh, we're at the point now where we have our final review and wrap up. So let's schedule that. Well, funny thing that not even five minutes later, I get this email from them who was like so not digitally literate it this paragraph with its long paragraphs and small fonts and, and its ranting tone and everything else where they went on and on and on and on about how we had actually not done a damn thing. Funny because this, uh, this project has pretty much been taking up, uh, our entire bandwidth is at a certain point. Uh, and you know what the funny thing is? The funny thing is about this, Michelle, is all of a sudden, this person was able to produce their copy of the agreement. And they sent me a PDF scan of their copy, copy, which had coffee stains on it, uh, written on it in different colors of pen, obviously written at different times, not even all in the same handwriting which shows that not only were they aware of this agreement the entire time, but they had been following it. Uh, They had been coming up with their uh, creative explanations. They knew full damn well what they were doing, and they tried to make it my problem. So the challenge is is that there are business creators out there who would actually say, oh, well, I must have – Miscommunicate. i'm so sorry what can we do to make this right I, i've seen that happen um, and even earlier days than that i might have been the one to do that now in this case i said uh no uh we did do all these things and let me remind you again of all the other stuff that we just added well in this case i'm going to say it out of the goodness of my heart uh and this is how you respond after everything and all these times you claimed you didn't have this agreement that apparently has been sitting on your desk the entire time. Print it out. Uh, try again. But the thing is, is business creators will feel that because, well, that's my passion, I have an obligation to make everybody happy. And, uh, Michelle, I think there's a mindset thing that causes some business creators to have that approach to it and want to quote, unquote, make it right for the client, even though in this case, very clearly the client is going out of the way to make it wrong for the business creator. So what can you say about mindset? Because this is a real thing. And when I've told this story before, I've gotten a lot of knowing nods from people listening to it.
1: Yeah. I I mean, mindset is super important in, in all of it. Everything that we do starts with how we think. If we think we can, we can. If we think we can't, we can't. I mean, it starts that, that simply. And so what we also see um, quite often in a in, in sense like this is I have got something somewhere. I certainly didn't make it up, so I'm not going to take any credit for it. But it says that the customer is not always right, but they are always powerful. And so keeping that in mind as we move forward, right, they're not always right. We know they're not right. Whoever taught us that they were always right was lying to us. I mean, that's just a lie. But they are powerful. And so how we handle that and how we deal with that is important. I think it's also as important to have the mindset that we are – In this so that we can be profitable and sustainable, not so that we can, out of the goodness of our heart, lose our shirt on every deal that comes up, because at some point we're going to hate our job, not have passion, not have any money, and we're going to feel like we need to take a step out, right? And so finding, when you talk about that intersection, we've got to find the intersection of serving our clients and serving ourselves. I I tell my clients all the time, we've got to find a way to be fair and reasonable in your pricing structure, but that means fair and reasonable to your business and fair and reasonable to the client, not in, in that case, as you kind of described where the client wanted you to be fair and reasonable to them, but it's all of your expense. And so, a, a couple of things. First is mindset. I'm going to be profitable. I'm going to know my why, know my ideal client. Like there were so many flags that maybe you could have shown up with that particular person, right? So that I'm sure right. as you move forward, if any of those things showed up with another client, you immediately were like, "You're not my ideal. I'm not working with you." That that's yeah. that's one. The second part of that is is when we know that we are in this to make money because making money means that we are sustainable as a business. And when we're sustainable as a business, that means we're going to be here the next time and the next time and the next time that that client comes back. And then third, I think what's also hugely important is, and and you you make a good point, is bringing up a really well-done contract. I mean, having a letter of agreement, scope of work, You know, I work a lot with creatives, and one of the things that I push them to do is to know when done is done, because if you don't know when done is done, the party on the other side is always going to push for more, always going to push for more. Rarely are they going to go, oh, yeah, be done. No, they're going to want, well, I thought you were going to do this, or I thought you were going to do that, sometimes well-meaning and sometimes out of a way of trying to manipulate as yours was. So have a very clear idea of when is done, done, and then I'm also going to say I'm a firm believer in having really great business owners insurance that will support you and all that, so that you know if there is some pushback on that, that you have the ability to have you know errors and emissions or professional liability or some part of that set up to support you. So there's so many pieces, and parts, but it all starts with the mindset to say I'm going to do this as a business and I'm going to do it the right way from the beginning to the end, period.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I, I had another case, um, you know, also in that business, but a little bit later on, right before I moved out of it, where we did another one of those proposals and the uh, and the uh, person wrote back. I guess they thought it was some kind of uh, – you know, give and take negotiation thing, or actually it was uh is you know how proposals are, it is this is a summary of what we basically already agreed to. Uh just tell me if there's anything you feel was missing before we sign, right? So uh so they so they sent it back with all these rewrites and uh I'm not gonna take up, you know, much more time on our on our call here to uh to get into the details of it. But the theme was is they were subtly Editing all the language to create uh, a responsibility for our firm to guarantee certain results, and at the same, you know, which could not be guaranteed because we're talking about going into the marketplace, and uh, you you can't guarantee the marketplace. And uh, to and to adjust things so that uh, they basically had no responsibility for anything at all, like they were barely even going to be there. And I recognized as soon as I saw it that this person was setting us up so they could get a bunch of work from us, uh, then complain, and then bitch and moan and get our credit card company involved until we lost the money anyway and basically get work from us for free, which they would then go and profit from. And I took their I took their modifications after I printed them out and put them right in the shredder and uh, said, uh, you know, on second thought, this is probably not the best opportunity for us to work together, good luck to you. But there are those who would uh, who would uh, take what I just described and respond to it by saying, oh, goodness, I need to work on my listening skills. So I heard just fine, and I saw just fine what was happening.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important that we do watch for those things, you know, because, again, a non-ideal client will cost us more than working with an ideal client will. and. Correct. Nine, nine ideal they may appear to be ideal, but even those ideas and the way that they use companies or the way that they try to, you know, interpret uh, a contract and make it into more than it ever was meant to be for their own benefit and behalf, all of those are things that are going to cost us. Because, you know, even if you're not paying to do the work and, like you said, you threw in so much on your own just to try to smooth it over or for other reasons – You know, there's still that idea that they can go out and slam us online and tell everybody how horrible we are and, Uh um, you know, ruin our reputation that way. And, and again, that's why we have to be super careful not to believe everything we read, good and or bad, right?
0: Yeah. I'll tell you one more red flag I discovered. And, again, I think this is relevant just to spend a few minutes on because it leads to – uh, mastering this stuff and not letting it happen leads to increased productivity. Because as you said, um, you know, when we take on things that are bad fits or that we don't enjoy, we almost always end up losing money on it. It's just funny how that works. Right. You always end up in the hole on that, regardless of anything. Is that if you have a prospect on the telephone and they start complaining about the person they worked with before, the company they worked with before, I say there's, a, I say that um, you need to be very wary of that. Now. If what they're saying is something like, you know, we really tried to make it happen with them, uh, it just seems that once we got into it, we discovered that uh, it just wasn't quite a fit and certain things weren't connecting. We recognize we need to go in a different direction, and that's why we're speaking with you now. If they can state constructively uh, why they feel that you are now a better fit for them to either finish this thing or redo it or start something else, uh, where it doesn't seem like it's an endless bitch fest, then fine. Uh you know, take that under advisement because I had somebody come to me once, and uh, they gave that story, and uh, they turned out to be a great client. It's just a matter that they recognized while working with somebody else that they needed to work with a company like mine instead, and we gave them a great results. Uh, however, if all they do is bitch about your predecessor, here's a tactic that I've taught people, and I want to get your thoughts on this: is um, say, hey, you know what? Um, you know, all this sounds good. And I know you're working with somebody else. And uh, what we typically do here to smooth the transition, especially when we're switching providers midway through a project, or if you have a history with somebody, is we like to have a brief transition meeting with somebody. So you you told them that you're changing, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I hate those backwards. I told them they're fired and all that. Okay, so fine. Um, just so that we have every, you know, we have all the background information, and we don't have to call upon you. To answer 20 questions you've already answered for somebody else uh, can you put us in touch with them if they bulk at that that's a red flag if they give you that person's information and then you find out that the story you're getting from the other person is a little bit different and here's another clue if, a, if the complaint that they're making about that other person is that they were unresponsive they couldn't get a hold of them they they never responded to anything they always missed deadlines but when you connect with their previous person, they're oh so happy to speak with you urgently and they're super helpful and they're willing to provide anything that you need. Uh, that's usually a clue that that previous provider is, is giving you a hint that, hey, this person is a uh, high maintenance, uh, hard to deal with person who's going to take you for a long ride. And uh, if you want to work with them, good luck to you. Maybe you have better results, but leave me the hell out of it.
1: You know, I grew up with um, the thought my mom used to always say to me, if somebody will say it to you, they'll say it about you. So when you see people doing things to other people, at some point you will be on the receiving end of that because their character is not going to shift and change. And I think it's the the same truth in business. One of my things is I know very clearly who my ideal client is and who I will work with and who I want. And one of the first things that I require is that they have to own every single part of the business, everything that works well and everything that doesn't, which means that if they give me a call and they start complaining about what everybody else in the world has done, I stop them and I go, tell me about your part. Tell me what you did. Tell me how you reviewed it. Tell me what you tried. And I make them own their stuff. And if they won't own their stuff, I'm not working with them. Even raising, I have two sons who are in their 20s. And when they were little boys and they would go to fighting like little boys like to do and that wrestling and all that stuff, they would come Uh in to me and, oh, do you know what he did to me? Do you know what he did to me? And the rule in our house became before you can tell me what your brother did to you, you must first tell me what you did to him. So you own your part, then you may tell me what he did. And if they weren't willing to tell me what they did, they were never allowed to give voice to what their brother did. So they learned very quickly, we either need to settle it on our own, because if mom gets involved or dad gets involved, this is probably not going to work out for us, or they would come to us and say, okay, let me tell you everything I did. I hit him, I kicked him, I spit on him, but now let me tell you what he did to me, right? And so then you thought Uh you got a more clear picture of what was going on. And I say that because I have had clients call me and had similar experiences to what you described where they're wanting to tell me what everybody else did and how it didn't work. And then I usually ask them um, similar questions. And I love what you suggested about, you know, the the transition meeting. But I usually, I do, I push back. And I go, so tell me what your part in it was. So tell me what you did. Tell me how long you lived with it knowing that it was wrong. Like I want to know what their tolerance is for bad work, potentially, or for not solving the problem, or for twiddling their thumbs when they should have acted. I want to know that. And those, to me, are behavioral interview-style t- questions, and you can learn so much about how they're going to interact. Did you communicate? How did you communicate? Was it through text? Was it through email? Did you ask for read receipt? Like, what did you do? Because they are literally describing the pattern of behavior that they are going to have with you. And then you get to determine, is that a pattern of behavior that you think will be profitable for you and your firm?
0: Right. And I think, what you, I think another thing to look at is um, if uh, they're in a place where they're able to say, wow, and I realize I lost $500,000 that way. And uh, they, can, they can explain it in such a way where they, you, know, you can develop a level of trust that they have learned some hard lessons and they just yeah. want a clean plate they want to try it again with you, then you can have that candid conversation about right. what about expect, about expectations. And maybe I I you get and maybe and maybe you get yeah, maybe you get to be their second chance to do it right. So don't leave that out either. I mean it's one thing to say, you That's know, right. screen out all pain in the ass clients, but let's go a little bit deeper. Maybe you have the opportunity to, if you choose to do this, not only be a service provider, but you could possibly become a business coach for them and help them uh, manage their relationships better uh, if they show that through this process they have a willingness to do what it takes to be profitable and successful because they've learned the hard way that what they were doing wasn't cutting it, but they also know they need somebody to stand by their side to help them do it right. That can be you.
1: Absolutely. and And, and again, if I'm having that conversation with them and they say to me, you know, look, hey, this is bad and I own it. Yeah, they had a part in it, but let me tell you. I didn't manage it. I didn't have my eye on the ball. You know, it, it, ultimately, it was my responsibility as the owner of this company. I can work with that kind of person all day long who didn't know they should yeah. have been looking at it, who was overwhelmed, who had something happen in their personal life, and they took their eye. I can work with that level of I own the good, the bad, the ugly all day long. What I can't work with is a finger pointer, right, because you can never get anywhere yeah. with them. Right.
0: Yeah. And to, and to your point, um, and to your point, I uh, can attest to the if they do it to somebody else, they'll eventually do it to you. Uh, which is why you need to have these behavioral type conversations and find out what's really going on. Uh, I've had the I found it very painful. That um, uh, and you know, in one case, somebody uh, very close to me, uh, you, you had a friend, and this friend was. Uh, they said, Well, this is my this is my hotline for information. In other words, the other person's a gossip. And what this person was mm-hmm. doing was actually getting information about me from their gossip friend and then and then interrogating me about it. And I was saying, Do you realize that you are nothing special to them? That you're not that one person they confide in, and that one person you can tell them secrets? In fact, I did a little digging and here's some of what they're saying about you. Now what? Right. Hmm.
1: Oh yeah, it happens. It happens, and that's why you know, kind of having an idea of what, what are the rules of engagement for your own company? Like, like you know, what do you want to work with integrity, and what does that mean to your company? And then who are the clients, and and what is that? What is the litmus test? I mean, I get it. When we first start our businesses, we're just looking for a warm, warm body with a checkbook, right? We're yeah, 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 <laughs> Come yeah, yeah. In, yeah, yeah. And you're breathing and you've got some money to spend, I can help you. And so then what happens, at least from my experience, is we try to meet the needs of everybody, Adam. We're just like, sure, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. And so we are casting a super wide net when we need a more narrow net in, in most cases. And so then what happens is we're working with non-ideal people with non-ideal budgets on non-ideal projects. And that is not a sustainable model. And so it does take a bit of refining after you've been in business a while to go, well, you know what, I really don't like doing that. Or I don't like working with people that are like this. Or I don't like doing these kinds of projects. And then being okay with that and moving forward and being able to narrow down our, our scope of offerings, being able yeah. to set a price that is commiserate with the knowledge and the expertise, right, and the stress-free um, opportunity to do the work. I mean, just all those things are valuable. And so then we just, over time, you know, it is rare that I've seen anybody outside of a franchise model or something like that where a lot of it's decided for you start their business. And 10 years in, they have the same um, client avatar for their ideal that they had at the beginning. Rare. Almost never see that. They've always up-leveled, 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 refined, refined, refined their yep. offerings, their pricing, and
0: their client. Yeah, but I think one more thing to mention. You touched on this as well. I mean, I love how this is going. Um, it, I mean, we'll get to some of the questions you want me to ask in the time we have left here, but we're actually covering a lot of that data through storytelling, which is very exciting. I love when the interviews go this way. Um, going back to, you know, your ideal fit stuff, uh, what's the things we see sometimes, and this is a, a debate that I've had with my Uh, with my own coaches as well, is they say, well, you know, if you need to raise money, then, you know, there may be that thing that you really don't want to do, but maybe, you know, you can make a lot of money doing it and just take the project on. because, And then just while you're grinding through it, just think about the result you're going to get with that money that you're gaining from it. Well, number one, you usually end up losing money one way or another because it's not where you need to be. We could have 10 interviews on how that happens, number one. Number tip number two, uh, that actually gets in the way of not only your time bandwidth, but your emotional bandwidth to move on to what you really need to do. And third, uh, third, if you're going to be putting effort into reaching out to people to get them to give you money quickly so that you can take on some projects to get your cash flow up, why not spend that same energy just going for the stuff you want to do because you still have to reach out to people. You still have to get deals in the pipeline quickly so you can get those deposits in your bank accounts to solve your money problem. So why not just use that as fuel to move yourself where you need to be like that? Oh goodness. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the rent. I need a project here fast. Why not use that as fuel to say, all right, no more screwing around. This is what I want to be doing in my business. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to get this and I'm going to, hustle and I'm going to work the messenger and
1: everything else I need to do until I get it. I, I totally agree with that. Um, and, and let me say this about the storytelling aspect of what we're doing when we're talking about profitability. I have a podcast called Profit is a Choice, and the whole idea behind it is kind of what you just expressed. It's that every decision we make in our business leads us towards profitability or away. So the numbers at the end – I'm not as concerned with having a discussion on the numbers because all they are is an indication of every choice we've made over that period of time. And right. so it's these discussions that lead us towards profitability. And so with with the um, the comment that you made about you know again not grasping and just taking on any work just so we can fill our time i would much rather us sit down and create like you suggested a really robust marketing plan to go out and get the ideals because i can tell you every time i have broken my process or broken broken my here's my ideal and here's what i'm doing every time i've done it with good intention i've never done it with bad intention ever every time it's been right. like the idea to serve But I am telling you, I cannot serve them at my highest because it's not my ideal. And so there always becomes this tension, whether the client knows it or not. It might even be my own internal tension. Uh, I am resentful because at some point no amount of money makes up for the fact that I don't enjoy this, I don't like it, how much longer is it going to last? And I would suggest to you that there is no way that that could be my best work for that client when I'm having that internal Um, conversation. It's just not. So I would rather take a step back, pivot a little bit, create a a more robust marketing campaign, keep that marketing machine rolling when I'm busy. That's where I see a lot of people get in trouble. When you talk about profitability, they get super busy and they back off their marketing. And then what happens is three to six months later, they, they have fulfilled the pipeline, but because they weren't marketing while they were busy, nothing else is in it. So now they're in a lull for the next three to six months while they refill that pipeline. So then it becomes feast famine, feast famine, feast famine, as opposed to Uh a more steady approach. Now, some industries are more feast famine than others and, you know, cyclical based on weather and all kinds of things. But in general, if we plan and we are working at it and we are steady and we are looking at the historical data and we know which months are historically our great months and which months are our slow months, we can do things way in advance to try to help solve that problem and not wait until it's upon us and then feel like we have to start doing that grasping that you're just describing
0: you know that that's funny that you mention that and and again we're covering so much on strategic profitability here so let's stick with this strategy right here of understanding where your natural dips and flows are there's two things i would look at number one which historically when you look you've been in business for several years and you see the data which are the months where you're really strong, where you're making all the deals, you're getting all the new sign-ups and all the revenues coming in? So, you know, this is where your money's coming in. Where are the slow months where you might be coasting by on recurring revenues or attrition? Okay, that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is also look at your outgoing picture. Where are the months where it seems like all your stuff is due? Uh, for my business, it's October because – it, it has something to do I think with the fact that uh, my corporation was originally formed in October so and for years my lease wherever I was living was always up in October that's not the case anymore but for years it was and stuff would just pile up in October and it continues to do so so here I, you know, so here we are it's you know long before October but we're already we thinking of what do we need to do to put something in the bag so that we're going to get an extra bump in October that's going to get us through that. So taking those two things and putting them together. I work with clients uh, in my private consulting business where they, uh, they sell information products. And, you know, there's all these information courses out there that talk about organic, viral, constant traffic, buying your products, and it's all a bunch of bullshit, right? Because even the people who make those courses, if you look at their traffic patterns, they, make, they get all their traffic and make all their money when they're launching the thing that teaches you how to get constant organic business from your information products. So working well with those clients understand that, oh, yeah, yeah, you are going to have to do this work. You are going to have to launch products. You are going to have to relaunch products. You are going to have to have repeat campaigns you do every year or two as your list of tritions, And you have a lot of fresh people who haven't bought this product yet, so you can grow more of them in as paying customers. You are going to have to do this work. And yes, most of your revenue comes in when you do this, and when you don't do it, you don't make much money at all. These are all the case. So what if you just had a plan that once every month or once every two months, you're going to go all in on all this, raise a shit ton of money, and then you're going to live off that basically for two months till you do the next one, but in the meantime, now you have all this other space. You could be creating other offers. You could be launching other lines of business. You could be doing other things because now you have something in the bank and you're not worried about, well, no, well I haven't gotten any organic visitors and nobody's bought my course and I'm in straight. The fact is you put a nice adrenaline boost in it and you had a revenue event so you can, you can, well, I don't want to use the word coast off that, but it gives you a cushion so that now you have the bandwidth to be more strategically profitable in your planning and your execution.
1: Yeah, and Profit First is, is a similar um, methodology. Let, let, let's talk about that for just a second. So what Profit First does is something similar to what you just described, Adam. It is a money management system. So it is not a replacement for your accounting software. It is a way to manage money. And what it says, like I, I, you may be from, familiar with Dave Ramsey, who's done Financial yeah. Peace University, Entree Leadership, great guy. excellent great guy. business guy. Yeah. And so what he teaches on, in the family uh, with budgeting is that, you know, you take your money, you put, you break it up into how you're going to budget it in the family, you have an envelope system. Profit First is very similar to that, but for the business, and we use actual bank accounts. And so what we would do is we would look at and do an analysis of, of the entire year and go, for example, um, and, and, you know, it can be even more granular down to the month, but we're going to look at it and go, Overall, Adam, like what are the expenses of your company running as a percentage of your gross profit or your real revenue? And then we're going to save that percentage out every month so that by the time we get to where we need to get, we're going to have that money. So it may be that for the first six months, you only need 20% of your gross profits to cover your expenses, but we're saving 24% because we know October's coming. So that by the time we get to October, we will have enough to cover everything you need to cover. But it does the same thing for profit in the company. So what it does, the whole idea behind Profit First, is to create the sustainable part of your business first. And the sustainable part of our business is profit. So if we can take out some profit first, this is not paying the owner and robbing the company. Some people have that twisted idea. That's not what this is saying. This is like, for example, Look at 401K, just to give you an idea. The government knew that if they gave us all of our money and said, hey, now go save for retirement, we were going to have a problem doing that, because when the money came into our home, we're going to spend it. So what they said was, if you want tax-free savings for retirement or these kind of incentivized savings programs, we need to take it out before it comes to your house. So that is, in effect, doing profit first for us, so that we are sustainable to have money later in a 401k program. That's exactly what we're doing in the business. We're taking some profit, a percentage of what we know that we can um, steadily do to sustain the business. Because, again, we're not trying to rob the business. We're trying to sustain it. And so we create a profit account. We take a certain percentage one, two times a month based on our allocation process, and we move the money into that account. And then we have profit distributions like the big boys do, right, in big corporate. Yeah. we get to actually get the benefit of not only the salary in our company, but profit in our company. We can then do profit distributions with our employees. We can take some of that money and move out into a new space. So that gives us, um, as you said and as we were talking about earlier, the ability to strategize on what is most important for our company. But I'm going to tell you what what doing Profit First does more than anything, Um, because my clients This is where they get caught. They make a heck of a lot of money, and maybe they are not paying themselves the way they need to pay themselves. You know, we can go all the way through the conversation that you and I have had about right client, right price, all that. We we get through that, but then they don't know how much to save for taxes. That's the other part that gets them. And so I I talked to um, a business owner earlier today that made great money, a couple million dollars in sales, but he owes over six figures to the IRS that he can't pay. So that is that comes yeah. at a really heavy price, right? And so part of Profit First is the first thing we would tell everybody is the first thing you do is save some profit. But the second thing you do is you make sure that you cover your taxes because both of those will shut down the business. You're not going to shut your business down as quickly if you don't make a salary. But if you don't pay taxes and you don't have some money to maneuver the business, you're, you're, you're toast. And so – let's make it sustainable first. Let's give Uncle Sam what's his, and then let's make sure we have profit in the company. Then we're going to go to make sure that expenses are scrubbed so they're as low as they can possibly be while still being able to provide great products and service to your ideal client, and we're going to make sure that you have a salary commensurate with the work that you put in. And so there's this awakening that happens when people go through these programs, and they start to really realize Either oh my gosh I've been doing pretty good, or sometimes conversely, oh crap I've not been being paid. That's why it felt like I was, you know, up at night trying to figure out where the next dollar was coming from. That's why I couldn't figure out how I was going to make the next payroll. So we have you do these things on a on a rhythm, and so in that rhythm, either every two weeks or once a month, based on the structure of your business, um, we have you create this rhythm. So I know that if I'm saving money every week, then in two weeks I can make payroll. I know how much I need to save week one. So if I know how much I need to save and I know what percentage of my sales is, or percentage of my profit, I now have a sales goal, which now tells me how am I going to get that sale. Well, now I've got a sales goal. Now I know who my ideal is. Now you can bet i will have a marketing campaign to get them. So it all starts to tie together and literally empower you to get the business that you want, instead of sitting and waiting on business to happen, and then complaining because it didn't quite work out the way you wanted it to.
0: Right, right. You brought up so many great points there that go into uh, so much of what's what's so important when it comes to thinking about profitability. And again, it's the term strategic profitability. What we're discussing here today is how strategy leads to profitability. So thinking about these types of things and. You know, you bring up a couple of points. Yeah, there are certain months of the year where you're likely to do well, so that's you know, so you focus on uh, what you can do to do even better there. Maybe you look at uh, some of the gaps in your revenues and see how you can fill some of those. Mm-hmm. And you also look at the reality is all of your expenses are not going to go out all at once at an exactly even level. You're going to have those months every year where you're going to get well. It's just the way things line up. And that even right. goes the time of that even goes the time of month I mean here's another thing I think business creators deal with because I had to make adjustments here when it seems like every single thing that you have automatically debited to your corporate account hits on the same day every month yeah and yeah yeah I've ahead. actually gone so far as to go back to folks and say uh, you know I'm yes. getting hit by five different expenses here that all happen on the 15th. How about can you run yours on the 10th instead? Uh, you'll actually get your money sooner, and then I can spread this out better. Or some in some case I may say, is there any chance we could do this on the 22nd every month? You know that I'm always going to have the money there. You're never going to have a problem getting this money. You don't even have to send me invoice paperwork or anything. You're always going to have your money on the 22nd. But can we do it there because I have a big... I get I have a big bump in client revenue that comes in on the 19th. And that gives me enough time to settle my bank account so that I can manage this without having to scrape and worry. Uh, I've also gone back to folks where I have recurring things and they have it set for every 30 days instead of monthly. You know how when it's every 30 days instead of monthly, you sign up for originally, for originally on the 14th and then about a year later, now it's back to the 5th. And then it just keeps going back to the 4th, and it just keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier, and it starts to conflict with things. And I've actually gone to those folks and said, um, "Hey, um, can you change me to an actual once-a-month billing instead of a 30-day billing? And barring that, can you take us back to the 15th again? Uh, would that would that be okay here? Because this is starting to interfere with my cash management plan."
1: I would totally agree with that. And and that's one of the things that we also look at when we are implementing profit first in the company is we look at where's cash flowing in, where's cash flowing out. And then we try when I spoke about that rhythm, Adam, one of the things we do is in the book it talks about the ten twenty five rhythm. And that is we pay bills and we reconcile and we do the things on the tenth and the twenty fifth of the month, which allows yeah. us time for them to get there by the fifteenth and the thirtieth. And so we absolutely go back and we might say to the gas company, hey, we need your bill due on the 25th. And I know right now it's due on the on the 15th, but, like, I'm done. I can't do any more bills. So I'll pay catch-up for 10 days if we can move it out, right? I'm willing to do the catch-up to move it. I'm willing to work with that. Credit card companies, a lot of them are willing to work with you. But what it helps you do is to manage the cash flow. So it helps you even out your bills. Or to stack your bills. Maybe some people get paid, like in my coaching practice, I get paid by the seventh of the month. I mean, my bills are all due on the first day of the month, and they're late on the seventh. And so I Uh stack heavy at the beginning of the month, not in the middle and Uh not at the end. And so maybe I move all mine to the beginning, get it cleared up. I have no more bills for the rest of the month. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can work it out to either stack it up or move it back. And it does give you that chance to more equalize, as we were talking about, income, income streams, and payouts. You also mentioned um, a minute ago about looking at the income and and how it comes in. The other beautiful thing about really taking these hard looks is realizing where do you need to bring in more income? So is it in the first two weeks? Is it the last two weeks? Like where are you? Where are you dipping if it's not a business like ours, that that's a normal thing, right? Where are you dipping? Where do you need to do that? And then thirdly, what it helps you do is then go back and even look at your pricing structure for whatever you're offering. If I'm bringing in this amount of money and I'm working this amount of hours and I got this amount of staff and this amount of overhead, are we really being, um, again, paid fairly for the work? And and when I say the work, I mean, if we could just touch on this for just a second, because this is huge when you start getting into, you know, really understanding your financials and getting your profit maximized is really understanding the value that you bring. And profitability is about being able to monetize the value, okay? And so when we talk about value, I kind of think of it this way. Sometimes we... If we're not careful, we can get very transactional in nature, meaning I give you an hour, you give me 50 bucks or whatever, right? And at some point, you're going to hit a wall because you're going to have no more transaction time. And so if if you've created a business that is based on value and not on transactions, you really then step back and think, what am I pricing for? And I would suggest to the listeners today that these are the things we're pricing for. We're pricing for knowledge. We're pricing for expertise. We're pricing for the time frame that we can get it done in. We're pricing for stress relief. And then we're pricing for the actual value, real and perceived, that we're bringing to the job. Because knowledge and expertise are different. Knowledge says this is what I know. Expertise says this is what I can do. Like I know things but I cannot do. You know what I mean? There are plenty of things that I know that I am not expert in, but I know them. And so for somebody who knows them versus somebody who's expert in them, our pricing will be different. And so I say that because, again, if we're charging by the hour, I had, I had this conversation just this week. Michelle, I'm getting faster at what I do, which means what? You're making less money now. Unless you keep raising your rates, the better you get at what you do. If you're charging transactionally or hour to hour, you make
0: less yeah. money. I and was so gonna, I was, to gonna be, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say yeah, that because yeah if you're going by like the hour, you're gonna get you're gonna get better. It, it goes back to a whole parable about the guy who uh, who uh, had his furnace fixed and the guy charged him a hundred bucks for it. He said, All you did was turn a screw and the repairman said, Okay, yeah, I will fix the invoice for you. Turn the screw, two dollars. The experience that helped me know which screw to turn so you get your heat on quickly, ninety eight dollars. Mm-hmm. Here, right. it's still hundred exactly. bucks.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it is. But but that starts internally. So I want to go all the way back to one of the first questions you asked me and tell you why I'm linking this all the way back, okay? You asked me about mindset. And I am going to tell you that our profitability, our pricing, and our value structure all starts with our mindset. So if we don't think what we're doing is worth it and is valuable and carries weight in the marketplace. We will never charge for it. And if you charge properly, right? Number one, we should have some people telling us no. They should be going, wow, that's kind of expensive. (laughs) Because if every single person that you run into says yes, 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 you could most likely have raised your prices. And so it, it all starts with us, not You know, the market's going to speak. If nobody purchases, you're going to know there's an issue. It may or may not be price, but you're going to know there's an issue. So for us to really be profitable, to really make the money we need to make, we have to first own the value. Then we have to articulate that value to our, our ideal client. And if they value the same thing, then usually they are willing to pay the price to get it. Price becomes secondary or tertiary in the conversation. Value is the leader.
0: Right. Precisely. Precisely. That's absolutely correct. And again, I just want to point out something very important. When you're charging by the hour, you won't necessarily get better. And here's one other thing I've seen be the death knell of businesses is when they um, offer some type of service, they say, well, you're paying for 10 hours of our time a month, and it's use it or lose it. Well, inevitably happens is somebody comes to them and says, I haven't used your service for three months, so I either want to use it now or I want a refund. Oh, and if you don't give me the refund, I'll just go to your credit card company. Right. I mean, because when you're saying you have 10 hours us a month, you, what you're asking to have happen is that either they're not going to have the 10 hours a month or it's not going to happen evenly because whose business really runs evenly that way, number two. And number three, number three, and I think this is the the so the big the biggest issue of all is then what happens if you end up with dissatisfied clients, like the ones who try and play by the rules, because they'll make up a bunch of stuff that they don't even really need just so they use their 10 hours, and you're going to hate doing it because you're going to recognize it's as much irrelevant to you as it is to them.
1: Right. It's just going to be busy work. It's like when my kids would say, if I can get this right doing five problems, why do I have to do 75? That's just busy work.
0: Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh,
1: again, yeah. So all of the all of this, this entire conversation, comes back to determining. First of all, do we want to be profitable? What does profitable even mean to us? You know, everybody has a different um, definition of profitability. I like to think about profitability of speech, profitability yeah. of communication. You you said. I mean, we could use just that one contract. Um, you know, disagreement. That was not a profitable communication on both sides. I mean, it was painful. Profitable employee development. You know, all of those things, if we think about it, it, it's every aspect of our business. And all of it starts with that wonderful first question mindset, choosing that in everything we do, we will keep an eye on profitability, knowing that we're not just talking about the numbers. Because sometimes I would rather take a hit with the money If it means a more profitable experience for my clients by choice, right, by choice, not by arm twisted behind my back, or a more profitable educational experience for my employees, or if it is going to help company culture. I mean, there's so many other ways to be profitable, but we do have to keep our eye on the financial piece to be able to sustain it all.
0: Exactly, and we are actually out of time here. So we have 45, excuse me, a minute and a half left. I want to give 45 seconds those to you to uh, share with our listeners um, if they want to take this to another level or what you have for them.
1: Absolutely. So thanks for that. So you can find information at scarletthreadconsulting.com and then forward slash BCR for Business Creators Radio. So you can go Uh there. You can learn a little more about me and my offerings. Um, I've got two great courses that I'll throw out, one called Understanding Your Financials and another called Master Your Profit, and the two of those in combination will empower you to look at all the areas of profitability that we've talked about on this uh, podcast today.
0: Yeah, let me say that again for everybody. That's scarletthreadconsulting.com forward slash PCR. So, Michelle Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Adam.
0: For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.